Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we've got another amazing, interesting guest on the show. We have Professor Dr. Eliza, who is a Professor of Human-Computer Interaction and Interaction Design and I cannot wait for her to tell me all about what that actually means. Welcome to the show, Professor Eliza. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amelia. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure already. I'm going to start with hopefully an easy question. What is your job? Ooh, that's actually not as easy as it may sound. <laughs> so let, no, let me start with the official name of my job. So I'm a professor of human-computer interaction, so you said that right, in the interaction design discipline in the Faculty of Engineering and IT at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's one job. And my other one is I'm Associate Professor of Design Research on Physical Interaction in the Everyday Context in the Future Everyday Research Group in the Department of Industrial Design, Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. I basically have, I do the same work for both roles. It's just for different universities and in different types of faculties, like engineering and IT is obviously different from industrial design. But what I do consists of a lot of different things. So it includes doing research, teaching, management, organization, and I can go in a lot more detail than that. Yes, professor. <laughs> okay, so that's a, a lot of different things. And I'm really curious how you've ended up with two jobs like that. Is there any way you particularly like to start? Like there's so much there. Yeah, well, the two jobs, that's... Uh, it's more or less a coincidence, I think, because I was an assistant professor in Eindhoven University of Technology, and I always wanted to live abroad. So I'm Dutch, as you probably can tell from my accent. Uh, I, I've always wanted to live abroad. I traveled a lot, and I really value traveling and getting to know other cultures, and even though we can't do that at the moment. But I always wanted to live abroad because I think a holiday is very, very different from living somewhere else. And so I had a sabbatical, which means that you, for some time you can postpone your teaching activities and focus on research. So sabbatical is not a holiday. A lot of people think that, but it's not in academia. So I had a sabbatical, which meant I had three months that I could work abroad in one of my colleagues' labs. And I chose Sydney. Uh, so I came to UTS for three months and I was offered a position. So I was super enthusiastic and, of course, came back. But at the same time, I got a really big grant in the Netherlands, which is, you know, funding to do research. So my university in the Netherlands didn't want to let me go. <laughs> um, so they asked me, what would you like to do? And this grant had to go through a Dutch university because it's Dutch taxpayers' money. So they offered me uh, to keep a small uh, contract there as well. So that's how it started, yes. And I still have that. So both are permanent positions. In practice, at the moment, I'm not traveling, as you can imagine. But before COVID, um, I would go back to the Netherlands twice a year, just for a couple of weeks. Um, I would do all kinds of work at the University in Eindhoven. And of course, visit my family and friends, which is great to do as well. But the majority of the year I'm here in Sydney because for teaching, you have to be physically present or at least you have to be. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you're doing? What kind of field? Because it's it's including a lot of things like IT and industrial design are two things that I've never really thought about together. Yes. So when we talk about human-computer interaction or interaction design, and these terms kind of overlap, these fields, I always explain it as it's a combination of computer science, psychology, and design, and somewhere in the middle. So the research that I do and my team does is we do user research, it's called. So we observe people in everyday life, in my case, because I'm really interested in that, either uh, with or without technology. And then we come up with, for instance, recommendations of how technology could support them or with new ideas for whole new products to help them. And then some of my team can actually build really cool interactive prototypes that we then give to the people that we um, stud- are studying. And we see if that actually helps them the way we had imagined. And because it's research, we, of course, we try to learn as much from all of these steps as possible. And we have to write about that and share that with the community and also with the world for people who are interested. Some of that is really public uh, information. So we can build on that knowledge and learn how we can uh, design technology better, I would say. Um, So that's the overall picture of human-computer interaction and interaction design, because that covers all products that have electronics in them. So for instance, when you look at your mobile phone or your tablet, your laptop, uh, but nowadays we have speaking objects in our homes, we have intelligent uh, cars, Um, So a lot of things have uh, electronics in them, and that's all has an interactive component. So if the product can respond to you, then it is interaction design. And someone has to think about how do we want to interact with it? How should we design it in such a way that, for example, people can use it for the things they want to use it for, but also to avoid them making mistakes or accidents from happening. So there's a lot of things you have to think about when you design or create or invent the interaction with new technology. So we often look at new things and we design new things. Um, My particular research, I run a research program called Materializing Memories. It's an international research program. So based both in Eindhoven in the Netherlands at UTS in Sydney, uh, and also my other affiliation is in Dundee in the UK. And we are a group, uh, we look into how you can support everyday remembering practices. Um, So we do design research. And what that means is that we study things either to inspire design or the design, for instance, of a new product or a new technology or an interaction. We use design as a means to study it. That's also possible. Into That's basically into the processes that you use for designing. So you can study that as well. Anyway, design research is basically the type of research that we do within human-computer interaction and interaction design. So it's very broad. And then we look at how people use their uh, memory in everyday life and how we can support that. And we specifically look at autobiographical and episodic memory, which is the memory of the events of your life. So the things that you have experienced and that you remember, which is very broad, as you can imagine, because we use that for building up our identity. So for you to know who you are, you need memories of how you have behaved in the past, but also what has happened to you in the past. So that's based on your memories. 
Um, we use our autobiographical memory for um, planning, for making you know new plans into the future, because that usually is based on previous experiences. Um, we use it for um, social activities and social relationships. So you use your memories to, for instance, to share personal things that happen to you. If you do that with someone else, they are also more likely to share something with you. So that's a way of building up social relationships and maintaining them. So yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why we have autobiographical memory. And so we use them in all kinds of things every day, all day, basically, but we're often not aware of it. And then that's the memories part, the materializing memories. Uh, the materializing bit is about how we can, because a lot of things are digitizing and becoming digital, a lot of the remembering activities that we used to do are changing. And for some things, you want things to be physical and not just digital. So digital has a lot of example, uh, advantages, right? So if we're take, talking about dig, digital photographs, we're taking a lot of them. Uh, we all think we will use them to remember our last holiday from before COVID. <laughs> but we take so many, we don't organize. The other people who were on holiday with you take a lot. You have different devices. And in the end, people end up not being able to find their photos anymore, let alone use them for the purpose that they took them for. This was very different when before the digital camera, right? When you had to be very careful and selective as to what you would have printed. And then the prints would be accessible by anyone, not just by you, but also by a visitor who'd come to your home and see this cool uh, new picture on the wall and ask you where you've been. So that's basically gone with stuff being digital because everybody sees a black screen and you can, you're not really reminded of what's behind it. So the materializing bit is actually trying to make a combination of physical and digital to support remembering, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot in that. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I can, and I can give lots of examples as well if you want. Um, but yeah, the, it's, I find it fascinating. It's, it's really interesting, especially because we look at very different groups of people. I started out doing my own PhD in this area, uh, which was focusing on everyday people for the first time having a digital camera. And now I'm giving away my age. <laughs> And the company I worked for at the time were wondering what will happen with that? What will happen? Because in those days, and you know, this is not that long ago, people only had one computer in one home and the computer was in the attic. Can you remember that? <laughs> a long time ago for some people. But so the company was saying, what do people do? They take digital photographs and then they have to take grandma up to the, the attic to show her the photos of their holiday. We have to see what kind of other possibilities we see with digital photograph and, and memories in general. So that's how I started out. That's how I got into like everyday people and remembering. But now, um, for instance, some of my team members uh, focus specifically on people living with dementia. So people who are slowly losing their memory, which is very, very sad. Uh, and we look at, can we make these people's lives a little bit less miserable can we help them in some way of course we cannot cure it we cannot prevent their memories from going but maybe we can help them in other ways so we you know we study people living with dementia and their carers and then we look at things that they experience in their lives and how we can support that um, so that's from like healthy memories to less healthy memories 
And then we cover all kinds of application areas. So for instance, museums, how does memory play a role in museums is one of my PhD students. Another one of my PhD students looks into um, jewelry because he's a jewelry designer. And he says, a lot of my customers are people who want a memory to be materialized literally into a piece of jewelry. So it could be a place, a person or a location. I have several people looking into digital photographs and um, how we organize them and basically how we don't, but um, how we could or should curate our collections. Um, I have one PhD student he's actually about to finish who um, studied social media um, because of course we share a lot of memories on social media. And he looked into um, romantic relationship breakups and how social media relate to that, like what happens when people break up because the current systems don't support it that well. And maybe that's an understatement. Um, so he gives suggestions for how the online systems could support that better. I've had a student look into meaningful design. So how can a designer create objects that are more likely to have memories for the owner? Because that would mean that they wouldn't throw them away as easily. So it's actually good for a sustainable future. And of course, a very important component in today's society. I have one PhD student looking into forgetfulness. What is forgetfulness and how do people experience that? It's also really interesting. Materializing memories is very broad. That was basically my point. <laughs> it's a very long story, but <laughs> yeah. Well, and I loved listening to you talk about all of those things because in my head, I would, like my brain's throwing up like, oh, my parents do this so that they can like actually use their digital photos and oh, I'm wearing a ring and like, yeah, for me, jewelry is really important mm -hmm. and memorable objects for some reason. Yeah. I'm like thinking about all the pens that I've been given over the years and some of them are really valuable <laughs> from an emotional perspective. Oh, yeah, and I'm like, cool. I reckon everyone listening is going to be like, oh, I get this. I think a lot of people would connect with the research you're doing. Thank you. Um, and yes, a lot of people have memories with objects they have. And it's interesting how it's different for everyone. So for example, I have a lot of memories with clothing. So I would buy them or get them secondhand from a certain place or a certain friend or, you know, when you're traveling or, and so whenever I see that item, it will remind me of, I don't know, that, that nice friend who had a uh, you know, this top she didn't wear anymore and now I can have it. So yeah, I have that particularly with clothing, but other people have that with other things. And it's, yeah, it's very personal and a very important part of your life, I guess. Is it like, obviously technology is changing really, really rapidly. And the fact that I can remember the first time I saw a digital camera mm. and yep. I was just like, whoa. Yep. <laughs> My feeling is that like our brains just can't keep up with that change and our brains are going to want to keep the old way of remembering and we're sort of not necessarily supporting that with the new technology. Is that kind of fair to be thinking? It, I guess it depends who you ask. Well, I, I don't want to know your age, but I think it really depends on the generation <laughs> you're in. So when I look at my students who are, let's say, between 18 and 25, usually I have mature age students as well, but the majority will be between those ages. They already grew up in a time where technology was constantly changing much more than I was. I think it's normal for people to hold on to what they know. 
right? So you can, for instance, this is an interesting research fact <laughs> about memory and especially music is that you can basically predict what people's favorite music is by looking at their age. Um, because it's in the formative years, it's in your late teens and early 20s that we store the most first of memories. And we, it's called the memory bump in psychology. So that's the time in your life where you have the highest density of firsts. And therefore, those memories are very special and more emotional and uh, stick better. So you, So if you ask people to recall memories over their lifetime, they will have a bump between... I think it's 18, 25, maybe it's a bit broader than that. They have a lot more memories they can share with you of those days, of those years. And the same holds for music. So it's the music that was popular around that age is usually the music that people still love later on in life. So yes, there is some kind of, I don't know, nostalgia, maybe even we're not aware of it, but something you, you just feel very comfortable with that is from yeah what you're what you were used to earlier but yeah it keeps on changing and it will not stop anytime soon so we better make the most of it so that's why we train interaction designers to to design these technologies in such a way that that we can use them we want to use them and we will only benefit from these new technologies and they can make our lives better like especially when we start thinking about assistive technology and whether it's helping someone who can't read use the internet or have a talking book read out to you that sort of stuff like there is a whole lot of potential to definitely definitely and I, I think we haven't even scratched the surface there yeah there's so much possible um and it takes quite a while before technology makes it to market so so we work like at the forefront with newest technology sometimes technology that's not yet um, available to consumers and we see so much potential, but it, it's really funny how long it sometimes can take before it comes to market. And then suddenly, boom, everyone has it. There's usually quite a, a gap or a delay somewhere. And um, I think it's about 10 years. So when like research, well, it depends on the technology, obviously. But so when researchers come up with a new technology and they think it's a brilliant idea, then usually it takes about 10 years before it comes to market in a product like when we talk about physical products, but if it's like digital online, that can go quicker. And and I do think it's speeding up. Yeah, it depends a bit whether you want to make, you know, a startup company out of it uh, or whether it's not for profit uh, because that makes some things easier. (laughs) But yeah, there is a, yeah, there is a delay in there. Do you work in collaboration with industry? I have thinking, ah, yeah, I still do. So when you talk about memories the majority of the institutions we work with are not companies um, but care homes hospitals individuals therapists but I have like for instance I did my PhD in a big electronics company Uh, I don't know if I can mention names and I've received uh, research funding from companies as well so I've had a couple of PhD scholarships from very big software companies who leave it to us to decide what we want to study. So it's not that they're trying to fund certain types of research. Of course, they have their interests, but these companies are just interested in human-computer interaction quite generically. So yes, in that way, yes. Yeah, because I'm just sort of thinking like 
personally I connect if I'm thinking about this kind of space I'm thinking about things like your Google Homes and Alexas and smart light bulbs and people shopping through voice (laughs) yeah yes yeah but yeah yeah, collaboration so I know that a, a lot of those companies have researchers that come to our conferences for example and that read our work so so for instance two of my uh, most recent PhD students so the one I was earlier talking about on social Mm -hmm. media he was hired by Facebook and the student who did meaningful object design as well so they both now work at Facebook full-time so yeah these companies keep an eye on the good researchers who do relevant research both for the research itself as well as to hire them later because when for instance when my students um like undergrads or or master students ask me like what's Mm. the value of phd there are a lot of companies out there who do value the phd because it shows you that you're an independent researcher and they need a lot of them especially the bigger companies like like the googles and the Microsofts, yeah. So yeah, so there is close collaboration there. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's cool, that's cool. Okay, so back to our sort of plan. What does an average day at work look like for you? Not that there ever is such a thing in academia, but have a <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is such a difficult question. I think it's one of the things I really like about my work is that I don't have average days. Every day is different. We actually also have seasons because of teaching and semesters. And so, and, and it's not a nine to five job, at least not for me. So, you know, some days you start early, but for me, I often work late because I work with people in other time zones. So I often have meetings in the evening, which is early morning in Europe. So that's not average either. But to give you an idea of some of the things I would do on an average day (laughs) um, is I would like to explain what kind of things we are expected to do as professors. And this varies per person because basically you can have an individual contract. But usually a professor at an Australian university has to do has to spend a certain amount of time on research, has to spend a certain amount of time on teaching, and then a smaller amount of time on organization slash management kind of activities. And so these things mix. For example, when it's in semester and we are teaching, then we have a bigger percentage of time spent on teaching than after semester is over. But it's all mixed. So for example, when I talk about doing research, what that means for me is that I come up with research ideas, I make plans, I write or co-write papers or publications about it, I write or co-write grant proposals, so we're always looking for ways to fund new research ideas and new research students, like PhD students or postdocs. We attend conferences. Um, we sometimes I'm invited to present, or other times it's just to listen what other people have studied, to be on juries, committees, panels. Um, of course, we have to stay up to date on the developments, so we have to read a fair bit. We collaborate with colleagues all over the world, so... Together, we supervise, for instance, honors and HDR, which means higher degree research students. And that's a combination of master by research or PhD. Or we also supervise uh, postdocs. So that those are people who have done their PhD and have a research-only contract called postdoctoral. So your PhD is your doctoral. But as other, another part of 
research is also examining um, research students' work. So for instance, I'm examining PhD thesis for colleagues and other universities. So that could be all part in, of one day of some of these things. In terms of teaching, we design subjects, we set them up, we implement them, coordinate them. Uh, we supervise casuals or tutors who actually help you with the teaching because often you can't do it alone. To do lecturing, although less and less with the flipped learning, which means you're, you're more interactive in class and lectures are recorded on, on video. Uh, we give tutorials. Of course, there's contact with students. Uh, we have to mark student work. Um, we have to play detective because we have to detect plagiarism, fraud, and other types of misconduct. Unfortunately, I don't like that part of my work. It's so depressing. So please don't do it, guys. I'm also a course director for the Master of Interaction Design at UTS. Um, so that means that I represent that degree uh, on open days. So open days is when the university, the UTS in this case, uh, people can either come face-to-face -face or online to get information about all the degrees that we offer and they can come and talk to me if they have questions about the Master of Interaction Design. Um, so that's the teaching component. And then we have the organization slash management component. For me, that means like running my materializing memories program, managing a team, managing research projects, to be on all kinds of committees. So I'm quite active in equity and diversity. So for instance, I'm on the faculty equity and diversity committee, but I'm also on the steering committee of the conference series that is most relevant to my research. <laughs> I'm maybe not. Yeah, maybe not by choice, but automatically I'm often a role model. So I have to, yeah, try to be the best academic I can be for uh, my younger colleagues or my more junior colleagues. Uh, I'm a mentor, which I really enjoy. I uh, mentor junior colleagues who often approach me. I do a lot of admin, of course. It's still a university and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of red tape. I manage budgets, I hire staff. Actually, I'm an event organizer as well because, um, for example, I organize conferences. I did one in February, which was right before COVID. So that was perfect timing. Uh, but we had like hundreds of researchers from all over the world come to UTS to share their latest research in my research area which is tangible, embedded and embodied interaction. I also have to do courses myself to stay up to date on lots of things like how do you manage staff, health and safety regulations, research policies in the university, procedures and forms, you know, that keep changing all the time, online systems we have to use, etc. So you can imagine that an average day would have some of these components. <laughs> Does that answer your question? <laughs> I think, I think you've done a very good job. <laughs> and I love the way you described it as seasons. I think that's a really mm. important thing to understand. It's not day by day. It's also season yeah. by season. Yeah. Yes, because uh, I guess for people who go to university, they know that um, usually autumn semester starts end of February, early March, and it finishes around end of June and then late July, um, spring semester starts until end of October, early, well, early November. At least that's how it, this, the semesters are at UTS. It's not the same at all the universities in Australia, but yeah. So in those times, we have to focus more on teaching, but still we do a lot of other things at the same time that students are often not aware of. They think you're there 24 seven to, <laughs> to answer questions. Um, but unfortunately we don't have the time for that. Yeah. So with all those things you've just 
mentioned, which was a lot. What what are the key skills that you see yourself as needing to be able to do this job well? Yeah, that's a really good question, and and it's actually quite hard to pinpoint it because it's and the the role is so diverse and so broad, but then again, so individual as well. Because we, when you're a full professor, you basically get some freedom as to what kind of things you would like to do as part of your job so it's not all set in stone so if if there are things you're really good at or that you just enjoy doing like for instance I really enjoy organizing events and I've always done that like even when I was very junior and I was not supposed to do that I was organizing events just because I enjoyed doing it getting people together and well, the basic things you absolutely need if you would like to be a professor is you have to do reading quite a lot of reading, um, writing, talking, like lecturing and presenting, but also in meetings uh, and in one-on-one conversations. Of course, you have to be able to think. (laughs) Um, I have learned that we do a lot of things in parallel. So if you like doing one big project and focus on that, then being a professor is not your thing because we do a lot of things in parallel, um, which I learned to really enjoy. So when I was a PhD student, I could focus on my one project and I enjoyed that too. But right now I feel like because I do so many things in parallel, for instance, I supervise lots of PhD students at the same time, they make a lot of progress. Like when I speak, I speak with them every week or every other week, they've already done other cool stuff while I've just been talking to other students who've done cool stuff. So um, there's a lot going on which I really enjoy. You definitely need to have a curious mind. So I know that's not a skill, but then again, it's also a choice, right? And it's something you can learn. Yeah, something you can develop even. So for instance, it really helps if you're interested to know how things work or why things happen or why people do things. I think that's kind of the core of doing research is that you're curious and you want to know, but also you enjoy trying and learning new things because That's one of the reasons I love teaching and doing research is that I keep learning. And for that, you have to try new things and you have to just do them uh, and and talk to other people. How do you do that and and invent stuff? With that also comes that you should not give up easily. So you have to persevere and you have to be resilient. Research in academia is quite competitive. And for instance, when I write a paper and I submit it to a journal or conference, then experts over the world will be invited to review it and you know more often than not it gets rejected because they find something that could have been done better or maybe it's not written up in a way that they completely understand what I did that's normal and you just get it back and you take that feedback and you learn from it and then you improve it and you try again Um, and that's basically research in a nutshell but maybe it holds for many more things in life but um, you definitely should not give up easily you just learn from your mistakes and try again you have to be creative or inventive in some way you come up with new things new plans new projects new knowledge but that sounds intimidating and it's actually not because there are a lot of great methods that can help you with that or people that can help you with that and i definitely enjoy it and yeah, in my case, I had to master another language. So I'm where I was born. We don't speak English <laughs> and everything I do now is in English. So um, that's another skill. Yeah, you have to master English if you want to 
do research in this research area. Yeah. And it's probably a lot more, but <laughs> let's stop there. I think that's probably enough. We don't wanna Yeah. <laughs> we don't wanna scare people. <laughs> there was a lot that was really good in what you just said, like being able to work on multiple projects in parallel, that's yeah, I think that's common across quite a few careers and not necessarily multitasking, but being able to pick up and put down things. Yeah. And yeah, and just like having a curious mind, always a good thing. Essential if you're going to, well, if you're going to make a job out of asking questions, you need to be able to ask questions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And don't be scared of thinking outside the box and raising things that you think could have been done differently or better or or just wonder why, why, why is a great question. I love why. <laughs> That's it. It's a reliable fallback. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you really enjoyed the mentor mentoring part of your job. Is that something you see as a skill as well? Yeah, well, I don't know if mentoring is a skill as much as it is maybe social interaction and maybe it's more like teaching almost, right? So because as a mentor, you try to help um, someone else by sharing your experiences and and experiences you've heard from other people for your mentee to be better prepared and to see options and possibilities and to think through things so yeah maybe it is a skill it's definitely experience and of course empathy trying to imagine like what is your mentee going through when they're trying to explain something to you and then uh, mapping it onto what you have in your knowledge box that you can share with them that might be useful. So yeah, maybe it is a skill. How have you ended up in this job? Like what was your path from the equivalent of high school to where you are now? That's a long story. I know I'm a detailed person, as you probably <laughs> have already found out. <laughs> so just, you know, butt in if it's okay. too long. Okay, some highlights. I'm assuming you didn't know that this was a career that was available when you were in high school. Well, it wasn't available. So, I mean, professorship was, but the field of interaction design as a research area did not exist. And human-computer interaction did exist, but was very different from what I ended up doing. And, and what it was, was ergonomics in those days. And I would not have been very interested in that. Um, so no, it, it wasn't there and therefore I didn't know about it until much later. As a high school student, I had uh, a number of things that I was really interested in, but I had parents who had a particular idea of what my university degree should look like. And I totally understand that they are, you know, they were born just after the Second World War in Europe and they had been rebuilding, you know, Europe. Um, so their concern was you have to be independent and make enough money that as a woman you're not depending on a man so the things I wanted to do they said nah you're not going to make enough money with that so I was really interested in cultural anthropology um, and they said nope uh, then I was really interested in um, I was interested in in very creative things like craft kind of things and they said nope <laughs> I was also interested in uh, English literature because I I read a lot so I used to read a lot uh, and they said, yeah, well, you can always do a language as kind of a hobby. Uh, and now, uh, obviously, it's part of my job, right? And then my fourth choice was biology. And my my parents were like, well, at least that's STEM. <laughs> With STEM, you can get, make it far. 
so I studied uh, biology um, in the Netherlands. In those days, we did not have the bachelor master system like we have now. Um, so I did a four year degree, which resulted in a master directly. So there was no stop for a bachelor. And when I was deciding what I wanted to do after that, I was really interested in perception research. So I did an extra half a year so I could do extra internships because I really enjoyed the internships. And I picked uh, internships that all had to do with perception. So hearing, speaking, and vision. And when I was doing one of those internships, they uh, invited me to do a post-master degree at, another, at the University of Eindhoven. So I studied in Utrecht. And this was a new degree. And basically now we would call it human-computer interaction. And they said one third of all the subjects is perception so it's actually good fit so even though i was the only biology student in the first cohort so it was a new degree and everybody else had either studied engineering or computer science or psychology i felt like i was the odd one out <laughs> but maybe more people felt like that but it did have perception in it um, so that was an hci degree it was basically a preparation to work in industry in hci um, but when I was looking for a graduation project, uh, I knew exactly the people I wanted to work with in the industry, and they offered me a PhD. So I combined my graduation project with a PhD. And then when I was almost finished with my PhD, my supervisor became a, who was working in industry, he became a full professor in Eindhoven University of Technology, and he said, I can hire one person. Would you like to come and work for me? And I, yeah, I really liked the idea because that meant that I could also teach. And I had tried to teach students while I was working in industry, but that was really difficult. Like the company didn't want all these students running around. And <laughs> yeah, there was very limited uh, options for supervising students. So that's how I became an assistant professor in industrial design in Eindhoven. And I still work there. And I still work with the same person who was my PG supervisor and who hired me. And I really enjoy those long-lasting collaborations that, yeah, you, you make a lot of friends along the way. And I really enjoy that. That's that's fantastic. And like, whilst it's frustrating to hear your parents like saying no to so many career options, <laughs> I'm really glad it worked out well for you and you're satisfied in your career as well. Oh, yes, because I don't know if... If, if, if it's very obvious, but the role I have now actually includes cultural anthropology because that's observing people and that's part of user research. It includes the crafts aspect that I was really interested in because I work in design and with designers. And of course, I do it all in English. So I feel like it's kind of full circle, even though that was never the plan. <laughs> But it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> it it definitely worked out. Yeah, and I really I really love what I do. Yeah, I'm very very privileged. Were there any key events in that whole journey that sort of either really sparked you your love for what you're doing now, or like helped you keep going when things weren't easy? Because you know, there's always going to be a non easy point. That's a really difficult question because. As I said before, the job I have now did not exist, but also I did not have any role models or examples I could identify with. So professors, scientists, and academics were almost exclusively portrayed as all the white males, um, which I, you know, I can't identify with. When I studied biology, we had 30% female students, but 
we only had one female full professor teaching us during my four-year degree. And she had the nickname, not by me, but by other people. She was called the witch, which I really felt bad about, but there was nothing I could do, but that's how people called her. I really liked her. Um, and she taught a subject that was really difficult. So I think that's why people said that. But I also did not identify with her. So I did not have any idea that I could become a professor, full professor, until after I finished my PhD. And I had heard that one of my supervisors had said so to the, the committee uh, in in. That's like after the PhD Viva, the, the committee comes together and they discuss how you did. And he said then there that I was professor material, but nobody had mentioned that to me before. I had no idea that that was an option. I presumed I would have to go into industry. So unfortunately, there was, yeah, none of these things were there for me. But on the bright side, um, I always got invited for stuff. <laughs> Um, so even though I didn't actively pursue things, you know, I was open-minded about what I wanted to do and I had an idea of what I liked and what I didn't like, but in the end, I got invited for this post-master degree that did not exist yet. So I didn't know about it. I got invited to do a PhD in industry when I was looking for a graduation project that was also not public knowledge. I got invited to become assistant professor with my supervisor. He only had one position, so there was no like public vacancy or anything. Um, so these people all knew me very well, and they knew what I would be interested in and capable of, and they made the match and invited me, which was fantastic. And I've been, you know, super lucky that I was in those positions. I guess what I learned from that is make sure you have a good network and be open about what you're enthusiastic about and interested in, and then make sure that you work hard and make a good impression. Um, because you never know who spots you as a you know, potential candidate for something. Yeah, so I don't have any particular key event or events. No, sorry. <laughs> That's okay, because I like what you've just said, because being open-minded is really important and being open to opportunities, but it also really just sounds like you created your own luck and you, through being open and communicating and developing networks and stuff you've you've built up the opportunity for people to approach you yeah well that's thank you very much yeah <laughs> that's great <laughs> I hope so <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I think the more people who can learn from that concept and like the fact that you are allowed to be enthusiastic about things and tell people about it that's important that people know that <laughs> That is very important. So for instance, now as a, as a professor, I, I know which students in my class are really enjoying what they're doing. And of course, I mark their work. So I also know the ones that have put the effort in, which for me is often a lot more important than being very intelligent, by the way. So I know when they're enthusiastic. I know when they try hard. And then if I see something like... For instance, we have all kinds of contacts with industry or if we have an assistant position somewhere, then I contact those students that have made a good impression on me. Those are typically the ones that are enthusiastic because those are the ones that are not like complaining about, you know, having to do homework or finding something hard, but the ones that are that show that they're really interested. Yeah. So I think everybody has that opportunity 
in in everyday life to to make that good impression yeah go out and do it people you can do it yes you can do it (laughs) (laughs) we believe in you (laughs) yes oh yes I, I often believe more in my students than they believe in themselves which is so amazing because you can really see people flourish as soon as someone expresses their their trust in them and yeah yeah it's really nice to see it's a very powerful thing to give someone. Mm, yeah. Of all the cool things that you're doing, what is the <laughs> most exciting one to you? What is the thing that you, you just, that is the thing you absolutely love the most? The most. So I have to pick one. I had a whole list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you a top three. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, it's so hard to compare these things. But as I said before one thing I really really enjoy is seeing enthusiastic hardworking and creative students learn and create uh, in general and so I'm I'm talking about you know my my first year undergrads who do a subject with me and for instance in my subject they have to come up with an idea for a new product you know and some just go all the way and they enjoy it and it's just so much fun Um, but all the way up to my PhD students who write these amazing books and publications and they create these really cool prototypes so to see someone learn and enjoy that and then create something cool uh, and then to know that you know you've played a really tiny little role in that that is awesome the same about research is like when you have especially when you have bachelor students who do not yet know what research is there's often a kind of a stigma like research is boring and it's just theoretical and well actually it's not so once I start showing them really cool interactive prototypes that my students have built and you can suddenly see this light bulb moment where wait a minute this is something that I could enjoy that is really a lot of fun too and same with the mentoring so I guess it all comes down to the same thing is is helping people grow and develop I I, I really really enjoy that yeah, if I have a content thing for me is also seeing new ideas, concepts, products and technology before they are available to the world. So to get this sneak preview into what all the different labs are developing across the world is really, really cool as well. And I have to say, I'm a little yep. bit jealous of that bit. <laughs> Come and work for us. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of research to be done still. So. <laughs> There's yeah. so much we don't know, which is yes. always, that's always exciting. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, and with new technology developing so quickly, that that it's endless. Yeah, I can I can see how someone would enjoy your job for sure. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to a young person? And like, obviously, anyone in high school by the time they get to your position, like the whole the world will have changed but mm-hmm. yeah. is there any advice that you would like to give to them if they're interested in this kind of whole thing um yeah so a couple of things if if you're interested in research go for it like don't don't think it will be too hard for you so i i get a lot of students who come to me and they say oh i'm not intelligent enough ah that's an that's I can't believe that that's the case, right? So for for example, if you can graduate from university, you've got the intelligence. Otherwise, you cannot graduate from university. So if you can go to university and you can get your degree, 
And it doesn't mean you don't have to work hard. Like I had to work hard for my master's degree, uh, especially because I'm such a detailed person. So I had you know, trouble remembering the big picture. So I had to work hard for my master's degree and look where I am now. So it, it has, of course, you need a minimum intelligence level, but it's, it's only one of a lot of factors that is involved. Um, so don't think you're not intelligent enough. Try a bachelor degree. And if you like that, and if you manage, try a master degree and try a research project and talk to someone who inspires you as to what kind of pathways there are. So that's one. So don't just don't think you can't do it. First, try and then try again and try again. That's what we all do. <laughs> the other one I mentioned before briefly as well is appreciate feedback. So feedback helps you to learn. And I always tell my students, feedback is a compliment by someone who's taking the time and the effort to notice what you do and then to help you do better. It's amazing. You know, that's what people do for you. Unfortunately, I see more in Australia than in the Netherlands, but I see a lot of people here cannot deal very well with feedback. They see it as criticism. So, for instance, if they submit uh, a work and someone says, oh, you know, you could have done that differently or you should have done this then some of them take it very personal and they are offended by it and push back. And that's not very helpful. Like if you want to learn in life, uh, in general, it's not even uh, university per se, but uh, appreciate feedback and think about the fact that the person giving you feedback does not have to do that. They don't have to take the time and effort to tell you something that you can learn from, right? So appreciate feedback is another one. And the last one is, Take any opportunity to learn. I always think anyone in every situation can teach you something, but you have to pay attention and reflect on it. And uh, if you like research, then it will help if you have a, a tendency to want to learn things. Yeah. I think they're all fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and maybe, I mean, a professor is, is a very long journey. So don't just think of the end goal because it's too long a journey. Just make sure that you enjoy every step of the way, which I did. I never imagined I would be here, but I definitely really enjoyed every step of the way. Otherwise, I would not have been here. Yeah, I think enjoying the process and not rushing and not rushing towards like one ultimate goal or one ultimate title. But yeah, yeah, if you enjoy the process, everything will go a lot smoother. Yeah, and, and people will notice that you enjoy it and that and when you enjoy something, you'll put in a bit more effort and you might do a little bit better because of that. So yeah, it all ties together. Are there any opportunities, like I think a lot of people listening are going to be interested. Are there any opportunities for people who already have careers or maybe they're retired? Like is there any way that they can get involved in this kind of stuff? So yeah, definitely. There's a number of ways in which you can get involved in Things University. I'll just keep it very broad. So for instance, we have courses mm -hmm. that you can do. At UTS, we have, we call it free taster courses. So you can just go online and we, we can share the URL if that's okay mm -hmm. uh, in the show notes. And you can just do a course online about certain topics. So for instance, I did one on the Internet of Things, which is really interesting. It's all freely available. You can do cryptocurrencies. Uh, there's a course on what Facebook knows about you, you know, but there's a whole range of them. So you can go there and, and learn some of the things that we as researchers have 
learned ourselves. You could also upskill. So we get people coming into UTS who are in a career, but they want to make a small change or they want to learn new things. You can do that in multiple ways. So we have two, um, well, you can do a whole degree, of course, of course, um, but you can also do smaller bits and pieces. One is called micro-credentials and the other one is called short courses. And again, we have websites explaining exactly what they are. The difference between micro-credentials and short courses is that the micro-credentials are actually the same as what we teach our postgrad students, but then it's a small part of like a postgrad degree, but you will get an official certificate for it. So it has a formal assessment and you'll get a certificate. Uh, UTS short courses are more generic mm -hmm. for life and work experiences. So they're not exactly like degree material. And I think with the micro-credentials, if you would add a number of those, and then over the years, you could eventually even get a postgrad degree out of it if you want. You can also enroll in research or apply um, to do research. I have supervised and still am supervising several mature aged um, HDR students or higher degree research students. For instance, people who have worked in industry for a while and they're actually looking for a challenge or they have this topic that they're really interested in and that they would like to dig deeper into. For instance, one of my PhD students, her mom is suffering from dementia and that triggered her to do a PhD to learn more about dementia and how we can support people with dementia using technology while she's having a full-time job uh, and small kids. Um, so this happens a lot at UTS. UTS is very flexible. You can, for instance, if you're a PhD student, you can be a part-time PhD student and you can even take a half a year or a year of we call it leave of absence is when, for instance, when work takes over and you have to pause it for some time. So there's some flexibility there. If you're interested in doing that, I would recommend to find a professor on the UTS website who does research that you're interested in and just send them an email and tell them what, you, what you're looking for. And then they can tell you what the options are and whether they are available to supervise you because... Um, there is a limit to how many people we can supervise and sometimes we're just full but that means maybe half a year later someone has finished and a new space opens up we also have application processes if it's part-time then typically you can't get a scholarship but if you would want to do it full-time there is a competitive scholarship program you can apply for anyway the potential supervisor will tell you all the details Another option is to be a participant in research. So as you can imagine, in our research, we need people to talk to. <laughs> so for instance, when we study how people use their digital photographs, we are always looking for people who are interested to participate. It sounds more scary than it is. So I've had people uh, who said, oh, you know, um, when I participate in research, does that mean you need to know everything about my marriage? It's like, no, not at all. <laughs> um, don't worry about it. So some people can be a bit anxious, but we can explain you exactly for each particular study what the aim is and what it includes and also what it excludes. And we have very strict uh, ethics, rules and regulations at UTS for very good reasons, of course, because we want to look after our participants. And that requires that we give you a consent form in which we explain, you know, this is what you can expect. You can stop at any moment without any having to give any reason. So if you feel uncomfortable or if you're suddenly, you know, super busy and you don't have time, you can always stop. Um, so being a research participant, we're always looking for people. And on my website for the Materializing Memories Research Program, we have a 
a page where you can put your name down if you're interested to be on the list to be a participant for future studies. Other options we have is you can also, especially if you work in industry, you could be an industry mentor. So especially for uh, engineering and IT students, because that's the faculty I'm in at UTS, we have a really cool program where we can have a person from industry mentor a student. And there, uh, I will give you the URL for more details as well. And the students really, really appreciate, you know, having an insight into what does it mean to work in industry. They can sometimes get a placement there. They like do some kind of internship. And for industry, it's really interesting to find good students because a lot of our students get hired, you know, through these kind of programs because the industry has seen the potential of those students. If you don't want to be a mentor, you can also become a sponsor. So we have scholarship programs to help students pay for their studies. Um, for instance, students experiencing hardship, students who are part of minorities in particular women but and also indigenous students are um, part of that group and again we have a website explaining what that means um, how that works and there's also contact information for who to get in touch with so yeah there's a lot of things you can do <laughs> at DTS. they're all fantastic and we'll make sure to include all those links in the show notes so if you are interested you can get involved yay <laughs> Is there anything that you, or sorry, are there any misconceptions out there, whether it's about human computer interaction or memories or anything like that, like any misconceptions that the general public has that you'd like to do a little bit of squashing? So a bit of myth busting. Mm, Yes. (laughs) So one thing about memory, when I tell people I study memory, the most common response is, oh, I could use some help with mine. Or, yeah, my memory is not not as good as I would like it to be. Can you make it better? And then I have to disappoint people because uh, actually my ulterior, one of my ulterior motives with my research is to make people accept that forgetting is a good thing. There's a really good reason that we forget a lot. Um, You basically cannot live a normal life if you would not forget. And there are cases of people that are really interesting case studies for, you know, for researchers, but it's very sad, um, who cannot forget anything and therefore they cannot live a normal life. They're continuously reliving um, and re-experiencing and they're completely almost obsessed with their memory. And whether that's cause or effect, I don't think is very well understood just yet. But so for our everyday lives, uh, we forget, nine. I would think, 99% of everything that happened to us on an average day right because like when I looked out the window earlier a car passed by I have no idea what color brand or make it was and it's totally irrelevant as well I next week I will have forgotten you know what the temperature and the humidity was in this office while I was doing this conversation with you it's totally irrelevant so we forget I would guess 99% of all the things that happened to us so if you If you're concerned about your memory, think about, does it hinder you in everyday life that you forget things? If so, maybe you need to talk to someone. But for the majority of us, it doesn't really matter whether you forgot an appointment or whether you forgot what you had for dinner last night or that you forgot to call your friend. In the grand scheme of things, it's not a big deal. So yes, forgetting is really a healthy 
is a byproduct of a healthy memory. A very wise man once said, forgetting is good. <laughs> With our research, we try to focus on what are the most important things you would like to remember. And by focusing on the materializing aspect, we try for people to select things. So if you can make a selection, for instance, if you think about all those thousands of digital photographs, if you can make a selection, then the ones you select, you will remember better than when you don't make a selection and you have way too many. So because remembering is based on rehearsal, as it's called in psychology. So repetition, basically. So if, for instance, if your your last trip overseas, you know, we all have our last trip overseas now. If you share that with your friends, your colleagues, if you think about it, if you write about it, that's all rehearsal. And that will make the memory stronger uh, and less likely to be forgotten. Of course, the more you have, the less you can rehearse them. So, yeah, so pick things. If you really want to remember certain things, select, be picky. <laughs> um, so that's one thing I would I, I wanted to clear up. Another thing is that I get a lot of people who think that professors only teach, which is interesting, because I hope uh, I made clear that I, actually we do a lot of things. For me, in my role, teaching is 30% of my job. So one and a half day a week on average over the year. Basically, teaching is a small thing. It's not like unimportant, but it's 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 not not even half of my time I spend on teaching. And that is because at universities, what we always aim to do is we do research. So we're on top of the latest knowledge that we can then translate into teaching. So our students also learn the latest of the latest. So we have to do this research to keep our teaching top quality. So yeah, that's another myth, I think. <laughs> I think they're great ones and possibly important ones for people to remember. <laughs> yeah, and maybe another one, uh, it's not a big deal now anymore, but for a long time, people did not assume I was a professor. So they would, I've been sent away from spaces because they said students are not allowed in here and i was like um excuse me <laughs> so professors can look like young women <laughs> they don't have to be white haired bearded white men and, and old and grumpy is how yeah. i imagine them as well yeah yeah exactly and stuffy <laughs> in corduroy jackets with uh, elbow pads yeah <laughs> Fantastic. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you really wanted to share? Yeah. So one thing, because as part of my role, I help students select where they want to go with their careers and their development. And one thing I've encountered is that a lot of students stress over the fact that they have to choose the perfect study, like after high school, right? Uh, or even after their bachelor, because they feel like they only have mm. one choice and they decide something for the rest of their lives. Well, I guess maybe through my story, you've already learned. Actually, there's no such thing. So what I tell my students is don't be paralyzed by choice because you still have opportunities to change direction in your life and your career afterwards. Try to find something you like and that you think you will enjoy enough to do a whole degree in and you'll be fine and along the way you will just learn more and more about what it is you really enjoy and which combinations of activities and skills and things you would like to do afterwards especially nowadays keep in mind that the job you might once have 
does not exist yet. So you cannot think too far ahead. Like uh, when I was younger, I thought I could plan out my whole life. Didn't work out that way. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but also it shouldn't paralyze you into not making a decision. So there's not one perfect study. You can, you can get in different in one place via all kinds of different routes. Another thing is if you're interested in working in academia, um, so if you're interested in, in doing research, uh, actually it doesn't have to be in, in academia, it can also be in industry. So there's a lot of research in industry. I would recommend to find yourself a mentor. Um, so talk to someone who can give you advice and guidance along the way, who has more experience, who has different perspective and who can help you yeah, develop yourself and maybe make priorities right or... As a mentor, I have had my own mentors, so I was a mentee as well. Uh, I've I've enjoyed both sides, and as, I think especially for women, this can be very helpful because a lot of the information out there is by and for men, and sometimes it's just really useful to hear a, a woman's perspective on things. So I found it helpful, but also very rewarding to do. So I really enjoy mentoring. Um, I think. You know, it can give you more confidence in where you're heading. And that's some, sometimes that's just all you need to then make it happen. I'm just sitting here nodding. I was just thinking, she's she's right. Can I add anything to this? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. And it, I get really frustrated when young people are sort of interrogated by older people in their lives and about what they're going to be in the future. Because it just, it implies so many things that, that thing exists and that there's a straightforward path to it that there's only one Mm. path and it's just it's just not a fair thing to put on young people no it I mean it used to be that way right Mm. Uh, more or less but in today's society it isn't and and also because the number of careers people have over a lifetime has grown a lot like in the old days, uh, you were like a carpenter and you were a carpenter for life. Mm. But today, people have all kinds of roles uh, in different phases of their lives. So so be prepared for lifelong learning. I think that's where, where it's heading. You know, you'll have to keep developing yourself. Um, so you better find things that you enjoy developing yourself in. And I think constantly reflecting on what you're liking about something, what you're not liking about something, that will help you. Yeah, and this can be small things, right? I remember when I eventually went to study biology, I had completely forgotten. But my mom was like, yeah, of course, you know, we always knew you were going to do that because in your primary school, you had to do a final project and you decided to meticulously dig out a composting (laughs) bin. And for every layer of material in there, you were noticed. You were uh, writing down how many of each type of insect was living in there, <laughs> and I'd completely forgotten I'd done that. But so sometimes other people around you can, you know, clearly see the things that you really enjoy doing that other people would not do in the same position. It can be even small things that you enjoy. Like, do you enjoy like working in groups, or do you prefer working alone? Do you prefer thinking about things for a long time or do you are you more like an introverted nature or more extroverted nature or or a mix or and these things can also change over your life but do you enjoy training someone or something or do you enjoy learning yourself or yeah there's lots of things that you can take from everyday life that can help you choose a direction 
have you just to wrap up have you got a virtual high five that you'd like everyone who's listening to the podcast to give to someone or an organization or (laughs) whoever someone who's doing an awesome job who deserves extra high fives yes um well actually it's not just one person but we have a group of women at UTS in my faculty and they call themselves the Women in Engineering and IT, which is abbreviated to W-I-E-I-T, <laughs> WEIT. And this is a program that supports other women in the faculty. So for instance, what they do is they visit primary and high schools to talk about STEM. They have relationships with industry, but also alumni. Um, they have all kinds of sponsorship programs, uh, scholarship programs, sorry, uh, sponsoring Um, They organize all kinds of events. They get women together because you can imagine faculty of engineering and IT, uh, the majority is male. So it's really great that they create this community for all these women in the faculty. And whether they're first year bachelor students up to um, executives, it doesn't matter. They're all invited to participate. So I really want to give a shout out to Wheat, and I'll I'll, I'll include the link uh, <laughs> if that's possible as well. Yeah, definitely. And we'll they're on social media, so we'll tag them as well. Yeah, and and maybe the last thing is I would like to thank you, Amelia, because I know this is not your day job, and I want to thank you for spending your spare time making this really awesome podcast series and helping. Women all across Australia making good decisions for their careers. Thank you so much. It's it's a challenge, but it's <laughs> it's so immensely worth it. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. yeah, you're doing an awesome job. Thank you. I appreciate that. I get to talk to some really cool people. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, because I'm now blushing, we'll have to... <laughs> We'll have to wrap up. So thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure and I'm feeling good about forgetting what I had for breakfast. <laughs> good. <laughs> thank you, Amelia. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 